0: The EDP Weird Norfolk With Shifra Connor Stacia Briggs And Richard Fair
1: I'm the shadow caster Of Norwich Ghost Walks And uh, just recently Discovered that I'm supposed to be introducing This evening (laughs) It was a bit of a disaster, so uh, I don't have any notes with me, so I'm going to be utterly useless. Felbrigg Hall, yes. It is a large place. Me and the silent hand took a little trip out to Felbrigg just recently in order to discover a little bit more about its haunted present and its disturbing past. And yes, we spoke to a fair few people there, the house stewards and the volunteers and so on, and... Certainly we did get a feeling that people didn't like to be there alone after dark. Now it tends not to be the volunteers so much, they're there during daylight hours, but the house stewards, the guardians of Felbrigg, are so often left to deal with things after the sun goes down. So there we are. It was very interesting dipping in, because obviously, having uh, done a little bit of research, it was clear there were some very famous ghost stories that come out of Felbrig. But uh, getting to know the staff, it was certainly not so much those most significant and famous tales that were chilling their spines by nightfall, but in fact, some other rather more mundane activity. So we will get to that in the course of the evening. A really, uh, what struck us quite early on was the amount of stuff in Felbrigg. There's a huge collection, over 500 years' worth of furniture and artwork and crockery and all sorts of mundanity. And the thing, the thing that is really interesting about the place is that the very last squire of Felbrigg... Mr. Robert Wyndham Ketten Kramer. He gave over the entirety of the estate to the National Trust back in the 60s or the 70s. And his one condition on giving over this huge building and all of its lands was that nothing must be removed from within its walls. Every single item has remained, and this is the collection of the 400-year dynasty of the Wyndham family, whose, uh, whose property came into the hands of the Kramers and the, who else? The Kettens, that's the ones. So there's this mass of stuff. And I, I mean, this struck me very quickly because having looked into a fair amount of paranormal activity over the last couple of years, it has become very significant to me that objects seem to hold memory. They carry the memories of disturbances of the past, often deeply negative experiences seem to get held in the very brickwork and the woodwork and the specific items that are left to antiquity. So the catalogue at Felbrick Hall holds no less than 19 thousand items and these are varying degrees of significance you can imagine all of the very nice stuff is downstairs in all of the big rooms so that the public as they stroll around this gargantuan house can uh, stare at all the delightful artwork and furniture and whatnot but what's really interesting <laughs> is all of the creepy stuff that they hide away in the attics and that is uh, all sorts of strange things. There's a lot of stuff underneath big dusty white sheets. Some stuff they don't even know what's going on. But there's also a, uh, an old child's wheelchair, a real disturbing looking thing, which was actually used by the squire uh, back when he had terrible rheumatic fever, I believe. And then there's this entire room filled with bird beaks and birds' claws in boxes. They call it the bird room. There was a certain amount of uh, stuffing of birds. Uh, But all of these creepy little leftovers have been left there. And then there's all of this horse hair, and uh, all of the bed linen that they can't chuck away. It's in the contract. It just has to sit there lingering with all of their clothes and all sorts of strange items that no doubt are giving off this very strange, energetic field. It seems to be up in the attic where so many of these unpleasant experiences get uh, felt after dark. Now, the staff have heard things. Laughter, snippets of conversation, male and female, footsteps, certainly. Sometimes while downstairs they will hear furniture moving, scraping across the floors... And when you know there's no one up there, that is enough to get you a little disconcerted. And indeed, sometimes they have found the furniture rearranged overnight. All sorts. But it's not just the attics. Downstairs in the service corridor, they've experienced all sorts of strange noises. But also, this is where one of the most frequent visual manifestations take place. There is a lady in grey who haunts them down there and she has been testified to over many decades, in fact. She wears a long, grey Victorian servant's dress, and uh, she has blonde hair, I'm told. So there we are. These are some of the slightly more mundane hauntings going on, but uh, I think in good time we are going to get to some of the slightly more famous stories and what indeed might be behind those. There we are, really. I hadn't, uh, hadn't thought this through, but... Uh... <laughs>
2: Um, stories to add, actually. Um, we, we picked Felbrigg um, because actually someone who we start who started working with us, she found out that we did Weird Norfolk and she was like, oh, I love it. And um, she had some of her own stories to tell. Um, and her mum used to work... Has anyone been to Felbrigg? Yeah. Yeah, that's better than I have, so that's good. At least you should be able to picture where I'm talking about then. <laughs> um, so her mum used to work in the kitchen for the cafe, which I believe is in the old stable blocks. In the centre of the kitchen is a a kind of one of those big kitchen islands, you know, so people can work all the way round it. Her and the sous chef were standing on one side and they heard distinct footsteps of someone walking on the other side. So they both ran round to see if there was anyone there and there there was absolutely no one there, which then kind of prompted the sous chef to start telling her different ghost stories. Um, one of them is that the pots in the kitchen often started swinging on their hooks without being touched. Another employee said that there was someone seen in the courtyard after it had been locked up. And actually, I have been to Felbrick, but only on the outside, so I can kind of picture that. So it had all been locked up for the night. He saw what he thought was a lady um, wearing a long cream coat. He thought it was the lady who owned who looked after, like, the the gift shop until she walked up behind him and asked him what was happening (laughs) (laughs) at which point he was terrified and went completely white and finally another one of um Brittany's um she didn't mind me naming her just so you know it's fine (laughs) Um, another one of Brittany's relatives um she worked in the tea room as well and she would have issues when they she was locking up she would turn all the lights off as you would do lock up the door get in the car start driving down um the driveway and she'd see in the wing mirror or whatever it is i don't actually drive what's the thing what's rear the mirror, rearview mirror. mirror thank you <laughs> my technical assistant there um in the rearview mirror that all the lights in the cafe were back on so she was like oh i forgot to turn them off she went all the way back turned them off locked back up got it back in the car drove off and all the lights were on again and this, she had to do it three times, and then it kept happening all week. And there was, like, no explanation. And then all of a sudden it just stopped happening. It was, it was really, really strange. Um, so Brittany had one other kind of distinct memory, which is not other than the go- amazing ghost stories, obviously, from Felbrigg. Um, she remembered when she was little. Um, it might even have been before the cafe was built.
3: Yeah, it was Um, when it was stables.
2: Yeah, it was when it was still stables. They had a display of um, spirit pictures, basically. Um, And it was these young women. And in all of the pictures, there was uh, a spirit next to them. And obviously, this piqued our interest. We were like, what? (laughs) Spirit (laughs) photography at at Felbrick? And she couldn't remember whether they... She assumed, because she was young at the time, that they were actually real ghosts... Um, but when we started digging into it, it was actually the work of the Ketton sisters, and it turns, right yeah. It? So um, Robert Ketton, is it just Robert Ketton? Robert Ketton, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Ketton Creamer. Um So it was the two youngest sisters in that family, and they basically got into the, the Victorian um, art of spirit photography, um, and that's what these pictures were. And um, unfortunately, we've only seen one of
3: them. It was it was difficult to persuade the National Trust to give us more than one. I'll say no more. <laughs> no, although they gave me a free pass, so I'm not yeah. going to be too. I love the National Trust and all they stand for and all they do. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they were only going to give us one picture, which shows it's um. There's two sisters, Gertrude and Marion, the youngest of five, and um, they lived at Felbrigg from 1863 until until they died in mysterious circumstances, and they used to. I guess there wasn't much to do at that time, although having I said that, that, yeah, i know i just really I just read nice your idea. paragraph that you've there written here it. saying actually they did loads there which, was a <laughs> <to do. laughs> they literally could Please barely don't. barely fit in doing spirit photography with all this lot, including picnics and uh, anyway, ice skating. ice skating bonfires, but one of their hobbies was this this spirit photography, and they did it by a long exposure, didn't they they yeah. used, and there's this one pit. I was about to say there's this one picture they only gave us one picture. The one picture that they gave us is is one of them we don't know which one on the staircase near the library and behind her is her sister as a ghost. It is actually, It actually you, looks really Yeah, if you really real stuff you'll see it. But it's it is a great picture isn't it? It's yeah, kind yeah. of really evocative, isn't it? And yeah, I mean quite obviously not to us it's ob- now but I think at the time it looked really, really realistic.
2: Um, I think. Did you go to see the stairs?
1: I did. Yeah. Yeah. We stood on the stairs, and it was uh, definitely ripe yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there's, there's not just spirit photography there. Yeah. Put it like that. There's, yeah. there's all sorts going on around that staircase. But as we've probably already illustrated to everybody, there is a massive number of ghosts and various paranormal yeah. phenomena. Uh, around the Felbrigg Estate, so it really is a complete melting pot, mm-hmm. frankly. I wonder if they got
2: into it because they'd seen something themselves and wanted to kind of well,
3: recreate it. Those, I mean, there was a very famous picture, wasn't there? Queen Victoria's son yeah. Arthur awesome. and his ghost nanny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it was it was hugely popular around that time. It was it was the done thing to have a picture either of your dead child or your dead yeah. relative propped up from behind.
2: Yeah, post mortem photography. Has anyone come across that? It's it's really. I feel quite conflicted about it because obviously you're like, well, it's a it's a a dead person. Like in other ways, we've
3: got loads of books in it. Yeah, That's what I saying. know. Yeah, yeah. we have basically got loads
2: of. I don't feel obviously that offended by it because I've got loads <laughs> of books about it, yeah. but. It's actually, it's really strange and you can really see why people would have done it because when their relative passed away that was the only kind of keepsake that they would have had of them and, and it was quite possibly the only time they would have thought to in have taken a picture. So they would get the whole family in, in some of the pictures and we were looking, sorry, I'm, I just, for podcast reasons I pointed to my friend Denise yeah. here because we, she works with me and she's actually a photographer. Um, and we were looking at those pictures and it was really interesting, wasn't it? And was the, the deceased person was really perfectly sharp. Like you could really see that image really well, and all the people around them were kind of blurry. Because yeah, they,
3: kept, really cause cause they kept
2: moving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs>
3: it was it was really interesting. And I was just saying to Richard that. Um, yes, I am was, here. Yes, yeah, I you. am here. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Richard, what was I day. saying to you? I uh, can't yeah. remember. Right so long ago. ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> we did. um I was doing the research for this and found a story from the no- from 1963, um, from Suffolk, which was in Tattonshall. If that, I think it's Tattonshall. It's not from Norfolk, so therefore I have not bothered to remember it in the same way I would if it were anyway. So it was... Sorry, it, it, sorry if anyone's from Suffolk. But a, a body was found in two suitcases that had been thrown out of a car in pieces in the suitcase and um, head in one part, body parts all over, the, all over the place. And because nobody knew who it was, the EADT, our sister paper, um, tastefully ran a picture of the dead head on the front page in 1963 and you know eyes open yeah. severed head because you could it's, actually yeah, see that it really was tell, a dead person light had gone out you
1: can really tell
3: <laughs> <laughs> and they <laughs> fact not in a good way the fact <laughs> that he would been in two suitcases
0: was a giveaway what was the headline,
3: <laughs> <laughs> the
0: headline. <laughs> <laughs> must have been a great one i don't
3: i don't know who is oh. this man i believe I think that...
0: Have you lost two suitcases? Have
3: you lost a head? Here, we've got the rest of it. But so, yeah, it was still still being used in 1963, but obviously has slightly lost its appeal, Mm -hmm. having pictures of your dead relatives taken.
2: Um, Just going back to the spirit photography um, a little bit, um, it was really... In the beginning, the spirit photography, it was actually sold on, like, as a novelty. People did it in their spare time um people you could buy books on how to do it so everybody kind of knew that it wasn't real but then i don't know maybe it's people who didn't have access to photography and, and that kind of thing they did actually start getting tricked in you know by charlatans to say you know oh in the notes it says i like that word yeah, it does actually say, oh, i like that word <laughs> Um, thanks for sharing all my notes. But they would, you know, these people start to tell mourning families that, oh, give me some money and and I'll take your picture and, you know, great aunt Bessie. Is that people who are just Yorkshire puddings, Is that <laughs> yeah,
0: aunt Bessie?
3: That's right, yeah. <laughs> Did she appear to you in a <laughs> photograph?
2: <laughs> um, and, and uh you know that they they were taken for a lot of money and it's quite. That's when it, that's that kind of thing makes me start feeling quite sad, really.
3: Yeah, it is sad. But I think there was a there was a, a, a kind of real obsession with death, wasn't there? Kind of Queen Victoria probably sparked the whole thing off, and didn't And I think she? she
2: validated it as yeah. well, didn't she? Because if everyone can see that the monarch is like in this really public kind of process of mourning for Prince so, Albert, yeah,
3: Prince Albert died when he was forty-two of. Yeah. Uh, typhoid or cancer or any we don't know what he died of it, it, I think she put it brilliantly something like he had a he had a, an irascible stomach or something well, anyway he died she was absolutely devastated she didn't leave the house for three years at all um, and wore black for 40 years which is as long as I have worn black almost <laughs> I'm a bit above her, I've done better but um, she she basically was such a superb mourner but I think she made it pretty cool yeah. to kind of be really, really, really professionally sad about something.
2: I think if your husband... It was, it was particularly
3: aimed at women and children, as these sorts of
2: things are. The men just had to look smart, I think. Yeah. But the women, it was like two and a half years if your husband died, and then after that you could like wear a ruff around the bottom of your skirt, oh, and then you got saucy. to add another ruff around the bottom for another year. And then after that, it went to, like, you could wear lilac, was and it? Grey. And grey. Yeah. And So, like, the longer the mourning process,
3: the more, yeah, it was weird. And, and also, in the, so at, uh, obviously, the royals did things kind of to a massive extent. So because they had more money than, I won't say cents in case someone's listening and I'm dragged off the tower. because they had lots of cash, um, yeah. they could kind of completely give over to the fact that they were professionally mourning. So Prince Albert had his face cast and a death mask made and a bust. They would then have photo sessions with the children as they grew up with the Uh, with with the the bust. The bedroom no, no, it (laughs) was all the time. And and her with the bust. Oh, um yeah. and uh, the bedroom was left exactly as it was every single day. They would draw warm water for him. Every single day they'd put clothes out. He never used them. Miserable. It's um very, she... thoughtful, though. yeah, very thoughtful. I think my favourite fact of all, other than that all mirrors were covered, the piano was locked so that no music could be played, door knobs were covered in black crepe. But my favourite thing of all is that she had his hand cast and then she slept with it. the rest of her life then she was buried with it the hand yeah so no further questions no and uh she wore the same perfume she'd worn on her wedding day from the moment he died orange blossom i mean she really did this incredibly impressively
1: kept him alive as best she could She.
3: i mean really honestly she kind of you know he still had his clothing out he still had... Um, he still had... Every time someone came to the house, they had to go and sign his visitor's book to say they'd been to see him. Cool. Um, I mean, you know, one might say quite insane, but... No. I, I, you know. <laughs> and there were fresh flowers on his pillow every day, wreaths every day in the shape of a cross. He had to have fresh towels. If she found out he hadn't, they would be sacked.
2: Wasn't... Um... We were talking about this a little bit at work today. Wasn't she eventually told that she had to pull herself out of this? Yes. Because it was get, people weren't taking the royal family seriously anymore. And well, she had after to... three
3: years of, after? Of, of not leaving the house, they kind of said, right, okay, you need to kind of mm-hmm. pop out now yeah. and, you know, hold a baby or, I don't know, do whatever <laughs> the whatever they did. What did um, they do? I don't know. Whatever they did, sacrifice she had to Sacrifice a goat. Sacrifice a goat, <laughs> absolutely. All that stuff. So yeah, she she was told, basically told off by her advisers, and they said the public will put up with you mourning for so long that they're a bit bored now.
2: Yeah. One of the kind of the questions that we were trying to ask tonight is like, why were the Victorians so obsessed with death and the afterlife? One of those reasons is obviously because Queen Victoria kind of validated you know it was okay the victorians were very prim and proper about a lot of stuff but the one thing that they were like okay with was death they used to like go picnicking in graveyards sounds really nice but <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: they um, still do that in in france and places like in spain really, yeah, yeah. you'll see it on a sunday they'll go out and have a, a afternoon tea with their relatives mm.
2: with
1: extra portions just in case yes, yes yeah.
2: exactly <laughs>
3: exactly um
2: it was. It was. I think they were so accepting of it because they were so so
3: surrounded by it,
2: basically. And, yeah, um, you
3: had loads of kids because yeah. you couldn't kind of yeah. be sure that they'd all make like it.
2: With, um... Obviously, disease was quite rife. New machinery wasn't particularly safe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Keep> <laughs> no health and
2: safety. <laughs> and it, even the clothes that you wore could kill you. You know, so it was. There was always, you know, someone Death was much more of a part of
3: life yeah. than it is today.
2: Also. Death was much more kind of at home. I don't think that makes sense, but people died. People died at home a lot more often than they do now. Obviously, you know people who are are sick or well. You you know, people go to hospital to die, or you know, maybe in care homes and things like that. And 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 so yeah, so you don't feel maybe as connected to it. Whereas there, then you know, everybody was really really
3: connected to it.
2: And it and I
1: relax and enjoy itself back then. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was All much around. more fun, wasn't yeah.
3: it? I was I was saying to, to you earlier. Did many of the stories you tell Victorian yes, come from that era. Plenty. Yeah. What kind of what kind of thing do you have? Well,
1: they absolutely loved murder stories. So Samuel. whenever there was a murder, it was well documented. It was sensationalised in the press. I mean, you know, to, to be honest, I think we've always been pretty obsessed. With death, I think that the Victorians were particularly keen on documenting it and, uh, you know, p- perhaps... I th- well, I still think it happens Monetizing today. it, maybe,
3: but... with the the kind of so. memento yeah, mori. And... Certainly. Yeah, certainly.
1: Yeah. Mm. Certainly. Well, up at the castle, there was... Uh, have you ever heard of Richard Knockholz? No. He was sort of the, uh, the bad rebel in the city. And uh, he was there during the Industrial Revolution. He was kind of fighting on behalf of the working-class people. Um, very subversively, and uh, was a bit of a front-runner for acid attacks, actually, well ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, he used to stand in the shadows and wait for members of the woolen industry, because he used to be a weaver, and of course they were all getting, you know, their jobs were being lost and they were being replaced by machines, much like in The Matrix. (laughs) And uh, he would wait round corners and jump out and splash you with acid and stuff, so Bit of an unpleasant character, but he'd also uh, go out to the, the farms at the time and uh, in the middle of the night, and he would set fire to them because, uh, and, and and that was purely for the agricultural workers. So he was he was working he on spread everyone's the love. Behalf. Then, he really, really spread yeah. the love. But no, the reason I wanted to talk about him was because uh, I can't remember what you mentioned, but it got me onto it. Was that <laughs> everybody was uh, hanged up at the castle gates? course and uh, you'd be hanged from quite a distance and people would come from all around thousands sometimes real morbid revelers they didn't have netflix back then and stuff so you know of a saturday night you were wondering who was gonna get put on the end of a string and you'd have a drink and a dance and whatnot and uh, richard knuckles had a massive group turn up for him something like fifteen thousand or more and the whole place was absolutely crammed because he'd become notorious as you can imagine this arsonist and uh, acid attacker, so on. And uh, unusually it was a very quiet occasion. The the usual party was quite subdued and they think that that may have been out of respect for this gentleman because he was actually... Most of the people there would have been working class and uh, everyone was going through the changes of the revolution there. But the key thing was that if you were hanged back then, you tended to be working class and male, most of the time, and what that would usually mean is that you were leaving behind a a widow, probably, usually totally penniless without you, the men being the breadwinners at the time, often with many, many children. And uh, what that meant was that very rarely were the bodies collected after the execution because people couldn't actually uh, afford the funeral costs. So what would normally happen is you'd be thrown into a pauper's grave called a potter's field, uh, most of you from Norwich? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Well, you know down Magdalen Street, there's that delightful flyover <laughs> with those two creepy little car parks on either side. Well, that was the potter's field. And uh, back in the 70s, when they uh, reworked that whole place, they dug up hundreds and hundreds of corpses, many of them still with their hands tied behind their backs. And so that was the kind of respect shown to the poor. But what I was getting to was Richard Knockholz. After his execution, they had a little, uh, little visitor waiting for them at the castle gates there. And it was Vera Knockholz, his wife. She was, uh, l- like I said, entirely penniless. They had five children. The pair, that used to live up in Sprouston. And uh, she'd come to collect the body, which was very, very unusual. And she didn't have a carriage of any sort. She had not the money to pay for a funeral or anything of the sort. What she had brought with her was a wheelbarrow. (laughs) And she lumped her late husband into the barrow and then wheeled him all the way from the castle to Sprouston. Drawing a few odd looks, as you can imagine. And when she got him there, you might have thought this was a sort of a a romantic, romantic. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds quite lovely, doesn't yeah. it? You know, What love. What dedication. <laughs> it's very romantic, isn't it? Yeah. I think so, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. How many of you lot would get the wheelbarrow out for your <laughs> hubby? <laughs> eh? Hey? I ask you. But she was a bit more cunning than that. You see, once Vera Knockolds got her hubby back home to Sprouston, she put him in his favourite chair in the living room and she strapped him on so that he wouldn't fall off. And then she charged people to come and see the body.
3: <laughs> what an entrepreneur.
1: Isn't it? A penny a look, it was. And she made an absolute killing. <laughs> there were literally queues around the block and uh, she went on and on and on like that. She actually was reported to have milked it a little too far because by the, by the end he was really starting to smell. <laughs> And there were bits dropping off, you know, it was it isn't was not a lovely
3: good. moral for us all? <laughs> isn't it just... Well,
1: actually, now that you ask, there is a bit of a romantic end to the story, which is that out of her ill-gotten gains, she paid for him for a proper funeral. Aww. Aww. And so of all the paupers... I know, isn't it lovely?
3: Yeah, <laughs> it's delightful.
1: Richard Knockholds is actually buried up at a church in Spruxton, oh, So Oh, really? Yeah, we'll have to
3: go and have a look. That's a great story. Digging back up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, there you are. Something got me onto that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be quiet now. I don't
2: know if we can follow that. We funny? are, yeah.
3: Mister in Inner... well. The only the only thing we were going to mention, I think, was that uh, we were talking about death masks earlier with. Um... Oh, that's right.
1: There's a death mask of yeah, it. Many... Okay, that all makes sense <laughs> now.
3: We're back. <laughs> 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 the death mask of Albert. And there are, of course, many death masks up at the castle, which we've just done a yeah, just big piece on. And um, and I recently went to Southwold, because I'm so posh, for a couple of nights. And on the way there, we stopped at an antique shop that my husband had seen earlier. And he said, there's something in here I think you're going to like. And so I walked through and he hadn't told me what it was. And I kind of looked around and suddenly there was a death mask on the, on the wall. He knows me so well. And, um, and it was um, the... And we bought... Reader, we bought it. And um, it was the death mask of... You will recognise her. I'm trying to see if there's a bit of French that I need a bit of help with here because I've written out a... Uh, how to say it so that I don't look stupid. But basically, in, in the 1870s, a woman was found drowned in the Seine. And she um, had presumably died a happy death as there was a smile on her face. And when they pulled her in, nobody claimed her. She was about 16 years old. And so what they did in those days was they took a mask, they took a plaster cast and um, they made a mask, they put it in the police station, and then people would come if they'd lost a (laughs) 16-year-old, don't we all? And and they would come and look, and this one was so beautiful that people started to come, not because they'd lost a 16-year-old, but because they really liked the look of her. Oh, for goodness I know. And so it became incredibly cool to then have your own copy of the woman whose name I can't pronounce because I haven't found the bit where I've got the, uh, <laughs> the woman um, from the Seine. So this is... The Marilyn Monroe of the she year. She was the Marilyn Monroe. Have you read about this? No. Right, she was. But um, they literally, loads of German women, began to model themselves on the dead 16-year-old. She was the look of the day. And I have now one of the copies. And it's the first time my husband has put his foot down and when I when he said where should we put it, and I said, I think we should put it. I mean, there's a brilliant space in our bedroom. It would look amazing. He was like, I have to say this this time. I'm not having the dead 16 year old mm-hmm. <laughs> watching <laughs> me sleep. Mm-hmm. This is we've got the 1920s ventriloquist dummy watching us sleep, but we not the, the dead 16 year old. 15,
2: 15. Yeah. So well, death well, masks well, was, were the huge. Only one wasn't taken from her actual face, though, was it? That's a copy of a copy. Well, it might be. I don't know.
3: <laughs> But the last fact about her is you all will know what this woman looks like because she is um, resuscitation Annie, the doll that you do the.
1: Really.
3: Yeah. So she was the one who they they modelled it on. So when you and so she's supposed to have the most kissed mouth in the world because you know it's a bit grim, isn't it? But yeah, so I have a death mask now, which is very exciting. So where do you keep it? It's in a box at the moment because he's, he doesn't like it. <laughs> we bought it and he doesn't. There's a few things. We were saying about this. My friend and I were talking about this with things we have bought that we haven't actually been able to keep. She bought us a tiny stuffed crocodile and they bought it home and it, it, they didn't like it. So and, and then they couldn't give it away because if you do, then it comes back, doesn't it? So they had to give it to a charity shop in the end, but there we go, so she's in a box she is bloody going up, I'll tell you that for free I think you should
1: just put her up I think. Mm. I think or put... just wait till you need to spice things up a little <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think he'd notice really quickly really, it's, it's an attic conversion, it's quite small you know, it's quite low walls but yeah,
2: there's one thing we haven't really talked about yet I am conscious that we're probably getting towards the end of our time, but I'll mention it anyway probably, I think the most well known Victorian thing is a seance mm. and Queen Victoria had quite a big part i think in validating seances as well um in that once when albert passed away um she actually got a a medium in to try and communicate with him and she'd heard on the grapevine the medium grapevine i guess (laughs) yeah um that was um a 13 year old boy had actually been communicating with her husband so she she sent for him, well, I think she sent people out to see him first to see if he was actually the real deal, and apparently he told her her guys that lots of things that only her and Albert knew, so she was like well he must be he must be the real thing and she invited him um to i don't know where did she live windsor when, was it Windsor Sorry, I don't know what these royal things um she invited him and um, he visited her, to her several times. Oh, it actually says at Buckingham Palace on my notes. So there you go. You were wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Let,
2: it,
1: enjoyed Let it be known. Know.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> it has happened
3: once before <laughs> in the 90s. Um, the, he,
2: she actually invited him to, to move in with, with the family and he said no. Okay. I think he might have been a little bit freaked out by a. I
1: know too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um,
2: and I think after that they they went their separate ways. But a little, a bit of an interesting thing about this guy. His name was uh, Robert James Lee's, and he actually claimed to know the identity of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, no. yeah, and he, so basically he he said he offered the police his help, and they they just they didn't they just ignored him. But what he said had happened was he was getting on a bus, and um, at the same time, he um, he walked past this guy and he said to his wife, "That's Jack the Ripper," and he was convinced that this guy was Jack the Ripper. It was really think, random. No, yeah, the police point, um, sent through, him away so as a man. madman.
3: Yeah. <laughs> It's a bit like me walking
2: um,
1: past somebody and saying yeah,
3: it, I guess. But well,
0: Jack the Ripper, I mean, a lot of people thought he was a member of the royal family anyway. Yeah, they anyway. did, yeah. They
1: yeah. Did. Little Albert Victor. I yes, believe. that's yes. it, yeah. Is, that in the, yeah. is
3: it
2: From Hell? Is that the comic? There's a graphic novel. Is that a graphic
0: novel? I think he was before that. I think he was before that. Yeah,
2: um, yeah it's a, but anyway, I thought that was quite a little interesting aside that he... I've got really an interesting or... story about him. That... Who, Jack
0: Ripper? Well, about Dean? Albert, Prince, oh. young Prince Albert. Was, when, for his 21st birthday, he had it at Sandringham, and um, there was a big circus in Norwich at the time, and the whole circus packed up, got on the train, and went to Sandringham and performed for him at his birthday.
3: Oh. Wow.
0: So there you go. And then they all came back and performed on Castle Meadow the night, that night.
3: Did
1: they? Yeah, absolutely amazing. <laughs> I That's I what get... power can do for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody bring a circus so, to Yeah, me. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely.
3: love it. I suppose we'd better bring it back to Fairbrick Hall and finish with our sisters, the yeah. spirit photographers. Yeah.
2: Um, so, yeah, we have got a little bit sidetracked, as anyone who listens to our yeah. podcast knows happens quite a lot. I'm and sorry. Yeah, it is the story of our life. Um, so the Ketton sisters, um, unfortunately, there isn't much to document their lives. It, all of most of the history about the Ketan family is all about the men um which is really annoying (laughs) um but it would seem um that neither of them married or started a family and they died just a couple of years apart from each other um and their death is where the story becomes a little bit more mysterious
3: Yeah, it's thought that the National Trust did some. My best friends, National Trust, who who I really appreciate every year getting my free pass. Thank you for that. I use it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Where was my free pass? Um, Exactly. Keep saying they're great. Um, They um, they commissioned a big project a couple of years ago um, that was all about the attics, and. They did some research into the wallpaper that was used upstairs, and some of it, they believe, was arsenic green. And so there is a theory that both these sisters died within a couple of years. They they were in... They that lived, was their they, bedroom. They
2: basically chose to live in the attic bedroom.
3: I think it's fair to say they were a bit odd.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> weren't they? I Somewhat they odd. Nice.
1: They used to dress exactly the same as well. Yeah. Did they? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, did they so they dressed exactly the same, and they were in this bedroom together in the attic which at that point although the rest of Britain had stopped using arsenic green because they knew that it was poisonous and they knew that you could inhale the I don't know fumes
2: even just exposure to it um, it can be absorbed through the skin um, inhaled it it, has been
3: known in Europe since the 1860s that it was dangerous but it takes time for this news to travel doesn't it
2: when you're living in the middle of nowhere
3: so it took 25 years, and they still were using it. Yeah. And so they found traces of this wallpaper in, in Felbrigg, and they think that that contributed towards the deaths. We can't... There's really so little about them. I had to actually buy a book from the National Trust, who didn't give me the book, um, even though I do Astin. so much so much work for them, Richard. It's unbelievable. All right, that's lost but, your free class. Yeah. <laughs> But, but not as much work as they do for the, for the, for the country. <laughs> but um, they, yeah, the, and it was written by their brother, Robert Ketten Creamer and, and he basically, the minute they had both died, he just gave up and the hall began to fall into disrepair. And that was part of the reason he nobly gave it to the public, because he No, no, made... you've
1: got that wrong. That's your third wrong.
3: Oh, well, station. well, I'm just saying what the National Trust told me.
1: Well I'm so sorry, National Trust. <laughs> you are wrong, wrong, wrong. No, no, it's actually um uh his nephew who wrote the book.
3: Yeah, oh, Ro- of course Ro- it's Robert, yeah.
1: Robert Ketton uh just sort of totally lost heart yeah, altogether up, and we? eventually just gave the um gave the house to R.W. Ketten Kramer's father and then it passed to him and he wrote the book and then gave it to the National Trust.
3: Isn't that exciting? <laughs> we love the National Just Trust. Just clear this up. <laughs> yes, so there was, there was some talk that the girls had died because the women by that stage had died because of, because like of arsenic, exposure to
2: arsenic. Hence why we all have arsenic drinks tonight. See? Yay. They yeah. all make sense. <laughs> worse, but worse we better. should point
0: out that they are all fake. <laughs> apart from one. Just yes. one is really <laughs> arsenic, OK?
2: So I think, shall we do a, a toast with our arsenic to um, Queen, Queen Victoria's Victoria. birthday and the mysterious Ketton sisters? <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Cheers! Cheers!
1: To your very good health, everybody.
0: Oh, nice. So the Victorians were, were obsessed with death. Mm. and They loved it. They revelled in death. Where did that all go? Because, you know, in more recent years, it's, it's a word that people find it very difficult to, to use or even talk about. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, passing on, passing over, kicking the bucket, and there's probably people come up with us, others. Why? Why did we stop talking about it? Well, people and, find it hard
1: to talk about bell-bottom trousers now as well. It's just, <laughs> it's I just trends, <laughs> it? <laughs> <laughs> I think... Yeah. Sorry? It could have been the First World
3: War. First World so War.
1: So many deaths. Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Yeah, a yeah. bit of an overkill.
3: Yes. Or all that, all that it, it has just become so sanitised. As, like Shifra said, people go away to die now. We don't kind of all crowd round deathbeds, do we? We we go off and we quietly die. And and people are so frightened of death. And we, we chase immortality and we chase youth so hard, don't we? That I think people kind of think, oh, you know, let's not... Let's not speak about that. My mum's not well at the moment. And people literally kind of whisper it to me. You know, is your mum all right? Like that. And then you think, yes, she's still alive. And, and you know, when people die, there's a kind of whispering about it, isn't there? People don't know what to say. They don't know whether they should talk to you or not. And you just think, well, if we're all a little bit more, it's all going to happen. We're all going to die. Sorry. <laughs> Don't want to give the bad news. Spoilers, I know. Oh, but we are all going to shuffle off this mortal coil. I've
2: noticed we? the um, <laughs> the bicycle okay. shop do like a death night cafe. cafe thing, which I think sounds quite interesting. Because at first I thought it was just for people who had lost, you know, lost people and wanted to talk about it. But that's not what it's about at all. It is actually just kind of normalizing death and like starting to talk about it. I talk about it all the time. There's barely we a day we don't plans. talk about death.
1: <laughs> More death on the streets. Yes, please. <laughs> there's a question at the back.
2: Perhaps the reason we aren't so obsessed with death as we were in Victorian era is because there's less mystery surrounding death. Now, with the advances of science and things, people are less sort of in like less inclined to believe in ghosts or the afterlife as they were in the Victorian era. So that probably yeah, I contributed. Definitely. I, I, I read somewhere that. Um, because in the Victorian area, there was only like two of you either went to heaven or hell, mm. and, and that's what everybody believed, whereas now obviously people have loads of different beliefs, and, and some people don't believe in the afterlife at all,
3: so it's, it's kind of yeah, irrelevant it's what lack happens of hellfire to hellfire and damnation probably helps, doesn't um, it, too, yeah. that before death really was something to be feared and something quite supernatural and, and you didn't know what was going to happen, whereas now we kind of know a lot more don't we and we know a lot more about the process and we can stave off in some cases the process, things that would have killed you know, even Prince Albert probably um, just wouldn't these days you would be able to carry on
2: Um, I had a question from somebody at work actually Um, he came over to my desk was it today or was it yesterday and he said why are most ghosts
3: Victorian? we had him on that one didn't we? Was up there. I was like, well, I
2: think you're fine, actually. But it was actually a really interesting, it was a, I, I thought it was like a, quite a valid question, because you know, we have so, so many people see a ghost in you know, a Victorian dress, and, and so you just automatically associate the spirits with the Victorian time. Um, I said to him, well, it's probably because you just don't notice the people in tracksuits next to you. Because that's, like, in context, isn't it? You could walk past, like, a million ghosts a day if they're in, like, normal clothes. But if you see someone dressed as a Victorian, you're more likely
3: to, like, notice them. Do you have any modern ghosts? Any 90s ghosts? Any 80s? (laughs) Ravers? (laughs) Any?
1: Nothing visually I can think of. (laughs) 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 You'd notice them in bell-bottom trousers, wouldn't you?
3: You would, absolutely. Have I got
2: flares? I used to wear flares you're not a ghost no well this is the other thing thing i said to him i was like maybe i'm a ghost and you don't even know because i'm just dressed i say normally
3: we had we had somebody on our podcast last week didn't we who had somebody who has seen a ghost a real ghost an actual ghost ghost. (laughs) and um one of her ghosts that she has in fact more than one ghost she's seen more than one ghost but the one that lives in her house He's, like, from, like, the 1970s, isn't he? And he smokes. And that's how she knows he's there, because yeah. she smells the cigarette, doesn't she? Yeah. So there is a ghost that isn't in Victorian garb, and he's down Earlham Road. So yeah. sit down there. <laughs> he's on Erlem Road, and he's smoking. And she even told us what he was smoking. Drum. Yeah. <laughs> that's what ghosts smoke.
0: And she also said that her son had seen a ghost. He'd stepped out of the house, and he'd seen this person going past on a bike. Um Sort of thought he was strangely dressed, and the guy sort of doffed his cap, but then he noticed that part of the wheels of the bike were missing, and it was because he was probably riding on a lower level of the road as it was yeah. in his time. He was
3: Victorian though, so he doesn't yeah, he, was, he, he, he he fits was, that, he yeah,
2: count. yeah, because oh,
3: wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well. we want the 70s ghost, sorry, 70s, <laughs> guest? okay, yeah. Sorry. I wonder if you wanted to mention
1: the in the library at Felbrick Hall? Because that's the most prominently kind of particular one, like visual. Yeah, do you know? Oh, well, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, them so well. Oh, yeah. It's, um. well, supposedly the one of the most famous ghosts seen at Felbrig is uh, William Wyndham Third, who uh, turns up in the library and all sorts of people including some of the, the modern staff who we spoke to have had experiences where they felt like there was someone in the room, and um, every now and then somebody sees this gentleman either sitting by the fireplace in the library, sometimes reading a book, sometimes standing by the table. And, uh, yeah, they, 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 it's definitely William Wyndham III. Um, it's quite clear. He wears a green jacket, although that's not the same one as the portrait, just outside on the landing. But it's definitely him. And there's a little theory... About him. You see, he was, uh, he's probably the most famous of the Wyndhams. He he rose to the most prominence in society. He was the secretary for war during the uh, French Revolution. And um, he loved books, seemingly. He collected a huge amount of them. There's this wonderful library in Felbrook stuffed with just vast tombs of information. The kind of book you could kill a yak with, you know. And uh, he used to spend a lot of time in there. There's even a little secret door, actually, behind a uh, behind the, uh, a a library cabinet. And you think, wow, a secret door in a library. And you open it up, and what's behind it is a little toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bit of an anticlimax.
3: Not if you need to go. Not if you
1: need to go, and you don't want anyone to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, he turns up there, and and people. Believe because of the way that he died. Now, the way he died is sort of potentially interesting. He uh, was coming through London at some stage and one of his friend's houses was on fire, or perhaps it was the house next to his friends. And um, he knew that his friend was an avid collector of wonderful literature. And so he had actually gathered a team and had them all go in and save uh, the, the vast portion of this gentleman's library. And in the process, he has uh, fallen over and bruised his hip, which he thought nothing of, and took all these books away. And then slowly, uh, over the next few months, this, this bruised hip got worse and worse and actually ended up becoming a tumour and was what killed him in the end. So it was his love of books... Perhaps that got him killed. Now, the little uh, legend or the superstition, if you have it, is that if you put a certain uh, selection of the library books onto the little table in the library, that is what will bring uh, William Wyndham's ghost to the fore. But I sort of contend this theory, and the reason I do is because it turns out from his diaries that William Wyndham III was, in fact, extremely troubled by literature. You know, he was quite confident uh, in, in the public sphere, but when he went back to Felbrigg, his diaries revealed that actually he became stricken with this sort of deep, dark malaise. It was a kind of hypochondria over literature. He found that he would be gripped by this incredible anxiety over which books he was choosing to read and how he was furthering his study and what he was becoming most proficient in. And he was constantly chastising himself in his notes for not pursuing the, 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 the right line of thought or you know, not becoming the most prominent mathematician of the time or the most prominent historian. He was really deeply hard on himself. And, and he called these, these attacks because that's effectively what they were. They were kind of desperate, emotional, anxious states. He called them feel. And so he would often sort of write that he was gripped by the feel in his (laughs) diaries. And what that made me think was that something's been overlooked because the way the staff see it is that, oh, isn't it a lovely way to spend eternity? He comes to the library and reads the books he never got round to reading. He just loves books. Well, I think actually it's far more miserable than that. I think actually he was deeply, deeply troubled by literature in general and his own, somehow his own lack of ascendancy to higher literary spheres. So there you are, just to cheer you up.
3: <laughs> but at least he was near the toilet. <laughs>
1: Thank goodness. I just think it's interesting that, considering everything he did in state and the country, that it's his library that he returns to. Um, And, you know, he was also said to be extremely guilty about some terrible tactical manoeuvres he he ordered in the the French Revolution, sending thousands of royalist troops to their deaths. And, you know, the reason we get so many high leaders come back as ghosts is just because of the incredible remorse Mm. one feels at leading people to their deaths. Even if you think the cause may be very noble, I think that in those last moments... As your life flashes before your eyes, there can be no no getting away from the effect, the impact that you've had on your fellow man.
0: And he's condemned to stay there forever because the National Trust can't take anything out of the house, <laughs> can they? <laughs> he's
3: <got to> <laughs>
0: That
1: seems to be the case with all of the ghosts in Felbrick. They're all trapped there by this horrible... Uh, this horrible dish. <laughs> well, no, I blame Ket and Kramer, frankly.
0: Weird Norfolk. Produced and edited by Richard Fair. The EDP.